I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. And this week's reading is, Faith is a call to prayer, and prayer is the call to faith. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospels of St. Matthew, chapters 7 and 21, we read, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Verily I say unto you, If you have faith, and doubt not, if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Paramahansa Yogananda showed by his own example that prayer is a power, provided we believe deeply in that power. When our thoughts and feelings are strongly focused and then united in growing awareness to the divine presence within, they can bring even seemingly unrealistic wishes to fulfillment. When Paramahansa Yogananda was in charge of his school in Ranchi, India, he took the boys on occasional outings to the surrounding countryside. There was a waterfall not far away, he told Swami Kriyananda, where I took them sometimes. It was dangerous to cross there, but I would cry out to the boys, Do you believe in God? Yes! <laughs> See, now I lost my place. <laughs> but I haven't forgot God. <laughs> and they would shout back enthusiastically, and so we always crossed in safety. Years later, after I'd gone to America, one of the teachers tried to do the same thing, but he lacked spiritual power. One of the boys slipped on a rock, and he was drowned. Thus, Master explained, belief alone is not enough. It must be united to one-pointed awareness, which leads to self-realization. The Bhagavad Gita, in the sixth chapter, underscores the necessity for such one-pointed concentration. Whenever the mind, fickle and restless, wanders off from its concentration, let the meditating yogi withdraw it resolutely, spurning every distraction, no matter how alluring, and bring it back again and again under the control of the self. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om. I am lost, Father, in the wastelands of wrong beliefs. Where is my home? I have kept the doors of my soul always open, expecting thee. Ah, I have not yet found thee. Rise high in the sky to illuminate my darkness. Be the pole star to my searching mind, directing me to thyself. For therein, I know, lies my home. 
Well, this morning's um, reading on faith, beautiful subject to talk about. And it also reminds me of a story that Yogananda used to love to tell about this very quote from the Bible. He said that there was a man who had read in the Bible that if you have faith, you can say to the mountain, be thou removed. Well, it just so happened that outside his window, he had a mountain. And that mountain blocked his view of the ocean. So he thought, okay, I can do this. So he, he went to the window of his uh, house. He looked out the window. He said to the mountain, be thou removed. Went to sleep. The next morning, he went rushing to the window. And lo and behold, the mountain was still there. And he shook his hand. He said, I knew you would still be there. <laughs> so... Master tells us that this, this uh, instruction to have faith doesn't mean that it's just based on fanaticism. It's just based on a lot of whipping yourself up into uh, false fury. It doesn't mean uh, sort of going to the mountain and saying, please, I read in the Bible that you would be removed. Please be removed. It doesn't, isn't a weak thing. It has to come. Actually, the... The uh, whole quote is, if you have faith as a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed, which is so small, and yet, what is faith? Faith is the connection of God within us. It's omnipotent. When we make that connection, that's, that's the reality, and that's where the power comes from. When, uh, when you have, when a person has a Sunday service to give for example, me, and, and you have a topic like faith, you're paying attention to see what life will bring during that week. And so on Monday, I had lunch with one of our guests, frequent guest here, and he said, he was telling me about snow plants. Snow plants are, um, many of us who've been in the high Sierras have seen them. They're at about 5,000 feet and, they're, and above. And they're, they come out of the... Um, they come out of the earth sort of like an asparagus. They're this sort of a spear-like uh, uh, plant, and then they flower after that. And you usually see them growing through the snow and the ice in the early spring and in, in those cold temperatures. Well, this man said he had seen a snow plant come through concrete. And so I started thinking, faith, power, focused energy, focused devotion, that plant was reaching up. It knew it could do it. And it just, a tender plant, it just kept pushing and pushing and pushing till it broke up the concrete. So it's a wonderful image for faith. And many of us think, or you've heard people say, or you've said yourself, if only I could have more faith. How can I have more faith? And the truth is, we are faith. Faith is the presence of God within us. And the Indian scriptures say that God became us. So God is in us all the time. The faith is there all the time. We don't have to get more of it. We have to stop blocking the obstacles to it. So what are the things that we do that block our faith? And what are the things we can do to help cultivate it? But what do we do to block our faith? One of them is that we're focused too much on matter, on the material world, on our material desires. And so we think, oh, 
I want a better car, and we pray for the better car, and we don't get the better car, and so we think, oh, okay, God, let me down. Is there a God? Whatever it is. And we're, we're, we're looking out there, and we're not really paying attention. St. Teresa of Avila said there are more tears shed over answered prayers than over non-answered prayers. Why? Because we don't always know. We almost never know, shall we say, what it is that we really need. Even what we need, what we want is a whole other issue, but we don't even know what we need. But if we can stand back from our desires and we stand back from what we think God should be doing and just pay attention, we get a whole different view of this. I had something an event happened in my life before I came on the path. It was pretty dramatic and, and painful. And I, you know, of course I got over it, especially being on the path. But a couple of decades later, I was sitting in meditation and, and this idea just popped into my head of what that thing was, of who I had been at the time and what that event meant in my life. And I just went, perfect. It couldn't have been more perfect. At the time, I didn't see it. For years afterwards, I didn't see it. But when I was impersonal, impartial, I could see it the way God saw it. And I said, bravo, that was the right thing. I'm glad that happened. I have a friend who's going through very painful and confusing illness, very challenging times over the last couple of years. And I loved it. She said, I know this is mine. This is mine. This is what God wants me to do. So having that feeling, she looks to everything positive that's come into her life, all the love, all the support, and she's grateful for it because she accepts that that was what God wanted her to have, wants her to have, and she's open, as the affirmation said, she's open to receiving it. When I was growing up, there was a relative of mine who said, I can't believe in God. And this is something that you hear often. I can't believe in God because of all the suffering in the world. And I love, and I may have, I'm sure I've quoted it here before, but I love this quotation from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, the person who believes in God has to explain the existence of suffering. The person who doesn't believe in God has to explain the existence of everything else. Okay. So it's a very, very big world and we have to be able to step back and look more deeply. Don't just look at what you want. Just don't look at what you think should be happening. Step back, try to feel it, try to, try to be more impartial, try to meditate on it. So that's the first clue to opening up our faith is don't be so locked up by, by your own desires. The second thing that we do to block our faith is something called scrupulosity. Uh, scrupulosity is a Catholic word and it means getting so kind of tangled up in your philosophy that you kind of can't move forward. And I thought of it because in the last couple of weeks, three different people who've said to me, they've all been guests, but they've all been guests who've come here who've, who've been involved a long time. They're disciples, they're Kriyabans, and these three different women said to me uh, something like either, I can't be a disciple anymore, 
I can't uh, be a Kriyabhan anymore. You know, I can't be on this path anymore. I said, why? Well, I, I skip my practices sometimes. Well, I, I, my meditations are too short. Well, um, I can't believe everything, absolutely everything that the guru says. Now, this woman has actually been here for only five days and been on this path for about five months. And she's, she's a, she doesn't think she can do it because she can't wholly and completely believe everything. This is asking a lot of ourselves. And Swami tells the story when he was with Yogananda, uh, the first year he was there. He started to have some high spiritual experiences, and then he started to get kind of tense. And he got into this period of what he called scrupulosity, of just, just saying, God, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. Just tell me what you want. And he started to imagine all these things. God saying, don't sit here. Don't go there. Don't talk to that person. Don't eat that. And he was trying to fulfill these, these requests of God. And he was just thinking, God is just like a hopeless taskmaster. I just can't do this. And he said, of course, I never reflected on the fact that God had never asked any of that of me. He'd just been making it up in his, whole, in his own head. And that's, of course, what I tried to share with these people as well. God is not here to create hoops for you to jump over. Our guru said, I will come again and again a trillion times. I will come back into this earth as long as one stray brother is left crying by the wayside. This is not someone who's setting hoops for us to jump through. This is the ultimate compassion for wherever we are. God is trying to help us. And so we want to try to put these things aside and to just look for that happiness, that presence of God closer and closer. We, we all know, and we even made a movie about it, about the fact that happiness is inside. <laughs> And yet sometimes our inside actually goes a little outside. <laughs> just, it's mostly inside, but then just a little bit of, well, maybe I should get a little bit more of this or a little bit more support or a little bit more um, creativity or whatever it is. It's like, okay, no, back. It's got to come all the way. It's got to come from your own connection with God through your own devotion, through meditation, through your spiritual practices, and then you can bring it into everything. So how do we go about cultivating the faith that is who we are? You know, I'm from Missouri, actually, literally, and there, <laughs> there is a, um, there's a phrase, you know, Missouri's the show me state, and it, and it says, I'm from Missouri, show me, and I've always been a little bit embarrassed about that. <laughs> because it indicated to me a sort of a doubtful kind of a nature. And I was so pleased. I was reading something of Yogananda's uh, yesterday, and he talked about, be like someone from Missouri. <laughs> yes! <laughs> what he meant was, don't hang on to your doubts just because you always had them. Doubt your doubts. Bring constructive doubt into your belief system. Make your doubts prove them. So if you think, okay, there can't be a God, it's all matter, it's all science, it's all what you see is what you get, you've got to bring some constructive doubt into that and say, well, how did all those little 
molecules, and did all those little atoms figure out how to form themselves into eyes and brains? And how did they learn to digest their food? Did they just figure that out themselves? Didn't there have to be an intelligence behind their intelligence? How did that love that people have for each other did that come out of all those atoms and molecules? Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Wrestle them to the ground until you realize there's nothing in them, and it opens you to belief. Doubt also your principles. Your thinking on things. Oh, I don't like that kind of a person. Oh. Um, Um, I don't do this, or I don't do that, or whatever it is. Doubt that too. Say to yourself, "Is that attitude making me stronger? Is it making me more free? Why do I have to have it?" There's a beautiful thing that Saint Paul said. He said, "I am renewed by the changing of my thinking." So we look at our thinking and has to. Prove itself. Swami was talking about editing, and he said, "When you're editing, every word has to prove itself to you. There should be no word in there that doesn't have a point to being there, and there should be no thought in your head that is not justifying itself by making you stronger and more free and more happy. So we can change these things. So we come from doubt to belief, and in belief." We we have our belief, but then belief is going to turn into faith into faith by testing it, and we want to use our belief. I'll give you an example that happened to me. It was the very first experience I had of praying for guidance when I had a class to give. So it was m- many 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 years ago, and I remember I was supposed to give a class for a communities conference. It was probably two, I don't know, early 1970s, and. I knew it was on relationships and community, and I knew there was something there that I had to understand, something very profound. And I sat in my meditation room, and I just held my mind to God, and I just was, "Tell me, what is it? What is it?" And I was just very, very focused. And in a certain moment, the answer came, and I remember the feeling of, "Oh my God." You didn't have to do that. I mean, I'm sure you've got better things to do than. I, it was so humbling. It was so humbling and so powerful. But those kind of experiences are where we build faith. We go out on our belief. We hang out there. We test it. It's proved. We develop a little faith. We do it again, more and more, and it grows. When I first read this reading on faith. The story that instantly came into my mind is one of the power, most powerful ones in the Mahabharata. Most of us know the Mahabharata, but I'll just give a little bit of intro, just for those who don't. Mahabharata is in a scripture of India, which includes the Bhagavad Gita, and it's an allegory of a battle that takes place in ourselves between the forces pulling us into material desire, negativity, selfishness. They're called the Kauravas, and the forces. Of the chakras, the inner light pulling us towards self-realization. The five brothers called the Pandavas, and the Kauravas are always trying to do the Pandavas in, and cheat them of their rightful ruling of the kingdom, which is ourselves. And so they challenge the Pandavas to a game of dice. And there's a lot of there's a lot of backstory. I'm not going to give you in this because it's not to the point. But、uh, you'll have to go along with this.、Um, And the eldest、uh, Pandava agrees to the game of dice, 
And he gambles away his kingdom. He gambles away all his wealth. He gambles away everything he has because the dice are loaded. The Koravas have the dice loaded against him. And he gambles away everything, and then he has nothing left. And then he begins to gamble away his brothers. And then he has nothing left. Then he gambles away himself. Nothing left to win it all back. He tries one last gamble. He gambles away his wife, Draupadi. Draupadi represents the Kundalini, which is married to all five brothers because the Kundalini has to unite with all five chakras. Well, the Kauravas go down and tell her that she's now a slave. She's been lost. And when she refuses to come into the, the room where everyone is gathered, they drag her into the room by her hair. And they stand there and they begin to insult her in the most awful ways. She's a noble princess. She's, a, she's the Kundalini power. She's brilliant. She's powerful. And she answers them back from the principles of Dharma. And she holds her own and no one will listen to her. And she appeals to her husbands who are most beloved and revered by her. They say nothing. Again, there's backstory I can't tell you. Um, and she appeals to the elders in the room. They say nothing. Only thing that's coming at her are these taunts from these awful men. She's in a room full of men. And only energy coming to her is hatred, uh, despicable insults. And finally they say to her, you are slave. You don't even own the clothes on your back. We are going to take your sorry off of you. Okay, so nothing has worked. Anger has not worked. Uh, wisdom, power, nothing has worked. She has only one recourse left, and that is God. And she, I mean, she did nothing get nothing from the husbands or the, any other people on her side. She turns to God, and she, who she prays to as Krishna, and she just focuses her mind 100% on Krishna. And she offers herself to Krishna and with everything she has. And she prays, Krishna, you are my refuge. I know I am safe in your hands. And she's smiling, and the tears are streaming down her cheeks, and one of the evil brothers begins to pull her sari off of her. And he pulls, and he pulls, and he pulls. And piles of fabric are coming down on the floor at his feet. And she remains perfectly clothed in her sari. Krishna is saving her. And this brother's arms become tired. And, he, and he's just got this mound of fabric. And there she stands completely in God. And he just, he gives up. And that's the turning point. That's the turning point. And then finally, one of the elders of the Korava clan realizes they've really entered into a major mistake here. <laughs> and he offers her a boon and she frees her husbands. And he offers her, he says, finally, he says, I give you back everything. You just, leave, you know, walk out. The whole gamble is off. And, and so they walk out with everything because of her complete 100% focus on God. So this example of faith is a, is a beautiful one to meditate on. We can't count on anything out there. But if we really apply ourselves, and this is why we have to practice meditation, and we have to practice devotion to get strong enough to do that. If we apply ourselves, God will respond in the right way. 
that um, story, well, this week had another part of it, and the two kind of go together. Um, early this week also, Mangala lent me a uh, DVD, uh, which I highly recommend, called A Shining, the Shining, it was called Shining Soul, Helen Keller's Spiritual Life. Um, Helen Keller, uh, and, and so it is a very, very inspiring movie. Helen Keller is the woman who was completely blind and deaf and became a great instrument of God and goodness in this world. But that movie led me back to a book that is one of my favorites, and it's the diary, the letters of Anne Sullivan, who was the teacher who came to Helen to uh, connect with her and to give her what she needed to be able to interact with the world. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, but I'm telling it to you not because I want to tell you about Helen Keller, who is, I'd be happy to tell you about, she's extremely inspiring, but because this is our story. Helen Keller uh, was born a normal child, and at the age of 19 months, she contracted some disease, and she went, became completely blind, completely deaf. And she said about that time, it was like being in a void. Nothing existed. No time. She, she had no way of connecting with anyone or anything, except, of course, through touch and taste and so on. But she had no idea. She, had, she was just in a void. And the family found out that they were now able to work with children who were both blind and deaf, and they, they sent to the Perkins Institute for um, someone who could help them. And Anne Sullivan came on Helen's, uh, when Helen was about seven years old. And she, uh, now before she came, naturally Helen's parents, who adored her, were totally distraught. And so the only thing that they could do with this child was to give her everything she wanted. If she threw a tantrum, that was okay. They'd give her cake. If, if she, whatever she wanted, she would put her hands in their plates at dinner and just eat the food out of the plates. She, they, they just had so much compassion for the fact that she had no way of interacting with the world and they knew how, no way to help her. So they just pampered her um, and indulged her in every way, which of course made everything even worse. But it was so bad. I mean, how could it be worse? But, so Anne Sullivan arrives and she has this child who is um, very, very strong very willful and uh, energetic and completely undisciplined. And so she begins to try to discipline her. But anytime the family sees Helen upset, like if Anne removes her plate because she's done something that's unacceptable, the family gets very upset and they, you know, they try to reverse everything. So Anne Sullivan said, I realized that the only way I was going to be able to help this child connect with her inner resources was through obedience to me. I had to be able to be with her alone and make her totally dependent on me. So she talked to the family. She talked the family into letting the two of them go to a little cabin where Helen, much to her sort of shock and horror, had to depend totally on Anne Sullivan. And they were only able to be there two weeks. But during that time, a relationship was forged that transformed Helen. She understood suddenly Annie Sullivan was able to communicate to her 
um, language, names for things, a way that she could interact with the world around her in a way that transformed Helen incredibly. And then they, they were able to build on that through an amazing uh, symbiosis of uh, communicating and Helen being just, it was like her whole world came alive and all the beauty within her came alive. Well, what so impressed me about that story was this idea, here we are, you and me, blind and deaf, thinking we know what's what because we can go to the store and buy what we want and we can talk to our friends and all this sort of stuff, but we're blind and deaf to our soul nature. And we've been pampered by our senses and we've been pampered by the world around us. But if God sees an opening, maybe that opening, well, if God sees an opening, he says, okay, I've got to get her to be totally dependent on me. What's that going to take? I'm going to have to remove a few things from her life. I'm going to have to remove some of that pleasurable pampering kind of thing. It might not be fun for the first part, but in the end, what's going to happen is through that dependence on God, she is going to discover the tremendous wealth inside of herself. And that's, that's our story, and that's what, what, how, how suffering and faith go together, and how God is trying to work with us if there's an opening, and saying, let me help you, let me open that door, and see if you can discover this inside of yourself. So I've been talking so far about, in a way, the snow plant pushing through the concrete. That, this is us on the bottom. We're pushing up, okay, because there's something in us that wants more. We want something. We know innately, in, instinctively, we know we have something more, and we're pushing for it. But the masters are on the other side. They have pushed through. For them, you don't say that a master has faith. Yogananda doesn't have faith. Yogananda is faith. The masters are beyond qualities. They live in a state of just simply knowing that there is never a separation between them and God, that they have no desire except for what God wants, and that God has no desire except for they want because it's, what this, it's the same thing. And so it's a stage of flow, and relaxation. When people read the autobiography of a yogi, I think one of the most striking things that you come to first is all the miracles. You know, Babaji makes a king, uh, palace in the Himalayan mountains, and um, uh, here he raises someone from the dead, and all these different miracles are happening. And, and you're struck by that. But that's not the real miracle. Of the, in the autobiography of a yogi. As Yogananda writes in the chapter, The Law of Miracles, he says, these aren't miracles, these are laws. They're just simply working with a different type of law. The miracle in the autobiography of a yogi is that someone has broken through their littleness and merged with God. That too is a law, that too has to come. But that's the goal, where it's just ease where we just know that God is, that God is. I'd like to end our service this morning
You probably know that um, there's terrible typhoon going on in the in uh, the Philippines, and it's going to affect close to a million people. Ten um, thousand already dead. It's very very strong. And I'd like to end with a prayer, which I think would be a good way to practice what we've just been talking about. So, if you would close your eyes and bring all your mind to the point between the eyebrows and feel the presence of God there, and as much as you can, focus all of your attention on that presence. Know in yourself that God's presence and light and care and love is in the Philippines. All the many souls there. Let's pray together, Divine Mother, Thou art omnipresent. Thou art in all these Thy children. Manifest Thy healing presence in all their bodies, minds, and souls. Rub the hands together. God's light to flow through you. Oh,